Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read from verses 12 through 20. You'll find 1 Corinthians in the uh, New Testament, definitely the, the second half of the Bible. Uh, we've been in Matthew forever, so your Bible will maybe fall open automatically to Matthew. Then turn right a little bit through Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians. If you're in Hebrews, you've gone too far, and if you're in the book of Concordance, you've gone way too far. So First Corinthians chapter 6, verse uh, 12, we're going to read from verses 12 through 20. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, actually Paul begins by quoting the Corinthians who say, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Therefore, sorry, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. About every three weeks or so, Art Rayner puts these two sentences out on his Twitter feed. He says, Jesus is alive and that changes everything about today. He doesn't reserve that for just Resurrection Sunday or even just the springtime. It can appear randomly throughout the year, every couple of weeks. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything about today. It's a good periodic reminder. I appreciate the periodic reminders. Today is a day that we, millions of Christians around the world, gather together for a special focus to celebrate this truth that Jesus is alive and everything is different because of the resurrection. When Art Rayner sends this message out, this reminder, I appreciate it because it quickens the truth in my mind and my heart. It reminds me a little bit of something that Martin Luther said too. He said, preach and live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. How would that change your mindset if that was true, if you could live that way? Just think about the sobriety over sin you would have or, or, and the joy that would mark your life, the, the hopefulness if these truths were that vivid in your mind. Have you ever been to the Smithsonian to look at Dorothy's red shoes? Um, so uh, in The Wizard of Oz, uh, when the, the movie was being filmed, uh, the original shoes that Dorothy had were not red, they were silver. 
But the director, looking at the shoes, recognized we're using this wonderful new color technology. We can't have something so bland as silver on the screen. We've got to have red. So he had new red shoes made so that Dorothy's shoes were as vivid as possible. The circumstances of life that we live in this broken world have a way of taking the truth that we celebrate this weekend, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we live in this broken world that tends to put those truths in black and white in our minds and in our hearts. And one of the things uh, that, that uh, uh, the truths that we celebrate today that is helpful today, we remember, we bring them into vivid color again in our minds and hearts. Jesus is alive and that changes everything about today. Every year on Resurrection Sunday, I try to pull a, a sentence, a verse or two from one of the letters in the New Testament that speak to us about what the resurrection of Jesus changes. How does it affect our lives? And I just read a passage that I have avoided for a long time. Um, you probably re realize why when I read it, some of you had questions. It's not so common that you show up to church on Easter to focus on a passage that devotes this much attention to prostitution. But the resurrection is here. It's here. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Now, does that strike you as odd? Then in a couple paragraphs where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the sexual morality in the church in Corinth, he would point them in the direction of the resurrection. Uh, uh, the reason he does this is because the resurrection changes how you steward your body. The church in Corinth had persistent and deep problems with sexual immorality. They lived in a sexually perverse culture, and they, they struggled in this area. And the Apostle Paul wrote a lot about uh, the pursuit of sexual purity in his letters uh, to the Corinthians in particular. In this instance, he wants them to know that the resurrection of our Lord changes how you think about, how you use, how you view your body. And this morning, I want to show that to you. I want to trace Paul's argument in these verses. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything, including how you think about your body. So let me show you. The resurrection of Jesus changes. We're going to talk about these three things. The future of your body, the identity of your body, and the ownership of your body. Let's start by thinking about the future of your body. The resurrection of Jesus changes the future of your body. The first readers of this letter were more influenced by Greek culture than they were by the Bible. There's a number of reasons why. This is true of everybody who becomes a follower of Jesus when you hear the gospel and, and become a follower of Jesus, you bring a lot of cultural baggage into your new family with you. And the Apostle Paul is trying to root out some of the Greek culture um, ideas that these uh, Corinthian believers had about their bodies. The basic Greek idea is that your body is a prison, that the body is a shadow, that the material world is evil, it's a shadow world, and that your real self your true self is your soul, and your soul is trapped in your body. Your body, the body is a prison. Um, this idea showed up in Corinth in a few different ways. 
Um, here in this passage, it shows up in the complete separation uh, in the Corinthian mind between what they should do with their spirit and what they can do with their bodies. Spiritually, they're Christians. They have been redeemed by Jesus. They're complete in him. But physically, physically, because, because the physical world is bad, it's a prison, it really doesn't matter what you do with it. Spiritually, we're safe in Jesus. Physically, the body doesn't matter. Your bodily appetites don't matter. They're unimportant, and you can do with them whatever you want. He quotes them. Actually, that happens a lot in this passage. Paul quotes the Corinthians. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. It doesn't matter what we eat because um, our bodies are, are, are prisons that are going to be done away by, by God. As long as my soul is fine with Jesus, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Um, I have, verse 12, I have the right to do anything. I can do anything I want with my body because my body doesn't matter. Now, this disdain for the physical body has been carried forward into the church in various ways, not in biblical ways, not in ways the apostles would endorse, but it, it used to be, and still you hear it sometimes, people having a suspicion about sexual intimacy in marriage because, you know, the body is bad and the body is unnecessary, the body is secondary. That's a Greek idea, it's not a biblical idea. Or... Um, Sometimes we, in the name of being spiritual, um, disregard your body's signs that it needs rest. It's just my body. It's just the body. Or uh, sometimes you hear uh, Christians, I don't hear this very often, but there are some Christians who snidely talk about creation care, about caring for the world that God has made. We don't recycle because God's going to destroy the planet and who cares? Sometimes this Greek idea seems to show up a little bit even today in the transgender movement that is so gripping our culture. Think about this. The Greek idea was my body is a prison. And we have people in our culture who say, I am a woman trapped, trapped in a man's body. Or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. My body, my material part, does not match my identity, who I feel I am in my soul. Therefore, what needs to be done, it's a very painful experience, it's a painful situation to be in, what must be done is that my body must be brought into conformity with my identity, with my soul. There's no thought of, of bringing your identity in conformity with your body. Your body's got to be brought into conformity with your soul. The Bible's message, in contrast to both of those ideas, is that your body is a gift from God. It's a good creation. It's a sign of his goodness. Psalm 139, the Lord knit me together in my mother's womb. The body you have is a gift from God. Every culture has a standard for what a perfect body is supposed to look like, a perfect man's body or a perfect woman's body, what that standard is supposed to look like, and we kill ourselves sometimes to reach it. We... Uh, exercise and we diet and we have surgery and we inject Botox into our body so that we can have the body that's supposed to be the standard. Um, have you ever heard of the practice of Chinese foot binding? Many of you probably have. It's an old ancient 
practice. So there was this idea in Chinese culture hundreds of years ago that a woman's feet, in order to be really attractive, should be small, very, very small. So they would start with imperial uh, uh, girls. They would uh, bind their feet. They would take, it, take the feet and wrap them so that they would almost fold in half. So the foot would be very, very tiny and fit into tiny shoes and be attractive. Now, it, it was disabling. You, you couldn't walk with feet that had been bound this way. Uh, but this was the ideal that we're after. And we hear about that and we think, oh, that's terrible. It's painful. It's horrible. Who would do that? I mean, we're much more sophisticated. We knock ourselves out and we use knives to cut apart our bodies. And we suck out the parts we don't want. And we use silicone, silicone to enhance the parts we do want. I mean, we're much more sophisticated than those foolish Chinese footbinders. God doesn't seem to care very much about the standards that we have because he makes bodies in all kinds of shapes and all kinds of sizes and all kinds of shades. Your body is a gift from God. And it extends to your maleness and the femaleness or the femaleness of your body. Your maleness or femaleness is an indication of God's will for you. For example, I know for a fact that if you have a male body, it is not God's will for you to bear children. Only female bodies do that. Some of you guys couldn't handle it anyway, so it's just as well. An indication of God's will. The Corinthians said... It doesn't matter what you do with your body because the body's going to be destroyed. And Paul says, oh no, oh no, your body has a future. We believe in the resurrection. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us too. The body you have, raised up, transformed. The Apostle Paul wrote about this a little bit in Philippians chapter 3, verse 22. Look what he said, uh, verse 20 also. Look what he said. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Your lowly body has a future. Now, inherent to this idea that Paul is advocating here in 1 Corinthians 6 is the idea that the Lord Jesus rose bodily from the dead. When he appeared to the disciples, he was there as a resurrected, holy, alive person. His appearances were not a, a dream. Not a, not, he was, didn't show up as a ghost or a hallucination. Uh, he was in reality there in the flesh. The, the New Testament emphasizes this in a number of ways. It teaches it. But also uh, in the narratives, in John chapter 20, Jesus shows up to meet the disciples Resurrection day in the evening, except one of them is missing, Thomas. They'd sent Thomas out to pick up the takeout. And, and I don't know that for sure. I'm just making that up. But, but Thomas is gone, and Jesus shows up with the disciples, and uh, he meets with them. And when Thomas gets back, uh, uh, they say, we've seen Jesus. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Uh, Thomas says, I don't believe you. John 20, 25. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, Jesus shows up. Thomas has already gotten the takeout. He's back. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Did Thomas actually do that? I wonder. Stop doubting and believe. There's a real body here, Thomas. 
At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, um, the Jewish religious leaders who were not followers of Jesus had orchestrated his crucifixion. Uh, They bribed the guards. They told the guards to tell the tomb guards to tell their commander that the disciples had come and stolen the body. These Jewish religious leaders did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but one thing they did believe, they believed that the tomb was empty. So they had to make up a story about where the body had gone. I know where the body was. The body was alive. Jesus is fully, holy, bodily alive. Now, we don't often think about the significance of this miracle. Thomas Williams is a medical doctor and few years ago, he wrote a book called, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? And in the book, he speaks about how complicated your body is. Your body has trillions of cells in it. And those trillions of cells, each of them for your body to function, must perform hundreds, if not thousands, of chemical reactions. And they've got to be done in the right way, at the right time, so that your body functions, so that you maintain life. Here's what Thomas Williams said about the wonder of the resurrection. Even the latest science has not unraveled the complete mystery of each of the cells of our bodies and how they interact and talk with one another. But for the resurrection of Jesus to occur, all of that information had to be known in its completeness and totality and known some 2,000 years ago. It was known by the Father, verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead God spoke over the body that he had created, and, uh, uh, and that heartbeat thump, started beating. Jesus is alive. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be too. Not just resuscitated, but resurrected, transformed. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Your lowly body transformed like his glorious body. Now, this you may have questions about this. Questions about how the mechanics, how this is going to work, how is God going to do this? What if someone's body was burned? Or what if someone's body was uh, buried at sea and is just disintegrated into the oceans? What if you've been dead so long that there's nothing left of you but dust? Then what's God going to do? One of my favorite stories related to this involves Roger Williams. Roger Williams, the Baptist founder of what became the state of Rhode Island. Roger Williams was buried, and a number of years, a couple decades later, they needed to disinter and move his body. So they dug up Roger Williams, and they discovered that an apple tree that had been growing next to his uh, grave had sent out a root that had gone down into the casket, into Roger Williams' skull, and down Roger Williams' body. And every person who had eaten an apple from that tree went, What's going to happen in the resurrection to Roger Williams? Well, I understand that question. The Corinthians had questions like this. Paul addressed the resurrection again in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul explains in verses 42 and following, the body's going to be transformed. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I like these images that Paul's using. D.L. Moody said, 
As I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried, they are only sown. They're planted. Now Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the differences between the body that you have and the body that will be. It will be transformed. Uh, In chapter 6 though, Paul has his eye on the continuity, the sameness. It's your body. It matters what you do with your body because your body has a future. I have a chainsaw in my basement. Some of you who know me and know about my lack of mechanical skill, um, that should concern you. It's surprising nobody gasped when I said I have a chainsaw in my basement. Because I am both careless and clumsy, I should not own a chainsaw. But about 20 years ago, in a moment of weakness, my wife let me buy a chainsaw. It's a terrible windstorm came through, and there used to be a willow tree that uh, when people were bored on Sundays, they would stare at. And, and uh, the, the, the uh, wind blew part of the willow tree, one of the branches did some significant damage. So I went and bought a chainsaw so I could fix the willow tree. And when I was done, the willow tree had lost some limbs and I had all mine. So it was a good day. Uh, And when, when I finished, I read the instruction manual. What are you supposed to do with a chainsaw when you're done with it? Because I knew it was going to be a long time before I used it again. So I took the chain off and I cleaned the chainsaw and I uh, uh, put the, the chain in a container of oil to preserve it so it would be ready for the next time that I needed to use it. And uh, it was ready. You'll be happy to know some of you should be relieved that a couple of years ago I got out the chainsaw because I thought I needed it and I couldn't figure out how to get the chain on the chainsaw. I don't, did it, it was is it like the dryer, it shrunk. I don't know what happened. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't fit. And that's probably good news for all of us. My point, though, is if something has a future use, you take care of it. You follow the instructions. God's instructions here, your body is not for sexual immorality. And because of the resurrection, your body has a future. It's for the Lord. Use your body in light of its future use by God to be resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus changes the future of your body. Secondly, it changes the identity of your body. It changes the identity of your body. That's the emphasis in verses 15 uh, through 17. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become united to Jesus. One of Paul's favorite phrases to describe a Christian is that they are in Christ, in Christ. You are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. His death is your death. His resurrection is your death. You become united to him. Sort of like a marriage, which is why widowhood is so disorienting. When you marry someone... You and your partner become this unit. You become this social unit and it has implications all the way through your life. You always have someone to stand next to in pictures. When it's time to eat at your house, there's going to be at least two tables, two plates on the table. If there's two tables, come and talk to me. You've got problems. But, but there's going to be two plates on, on the table. Uh, there's always an and with your name. When, when, when people name you, there's an and. You, you get invited to parties together. And you live that way for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and then 
your partner is gone and, and that loss of identity is disorienting. You're not an and anymore. Jesus, when you become a follower of Jesus, you are united to Christ. Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this, Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 6, 8 says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You are united to Christ. Your body is part of his body. Paul uses literal language here, quite literal language. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Your Christ's hands, your Christ's feet, your body is united to Christ. And because of that unity that you have with Christ, it changes who you can unite your body with. We'll use Paul's language. Uniting your body uh, with a prostitute is, is a marriage-like act that cannot be done because you are already united to Jesus. Paul expects you to be horrified by this. Horrified. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Never. It's not what your body is for. It's for the Lord. You should be horrified by this. It's been a long time since we've had sippy cups at our house, but we had sippy cups at our house at one point in time. And uh, when it was dinner time, I would put milk into a sippy cup and hand it to a little child. And um, sometimes little children have a way of wandering away with sippy cups, which is okay if it's got water in it. Uh, but what happens to a sippy cup with milk that's lost for two or three or five or seven days? It comes back chunky. And, and I, it was part of my husbandly responsibilities to save my dear wife from the horror of chunky milk. So I would take the lid off of the sippy cup and, and dump the chunky milk down the drain as fast as I possibly could. I don't care how thirsty I have ever been. I have never had a desire to drink chunky milk. The Apostle Paul is writing about the wonder of the Lord Jesus, and he's saying that the wonder of the Lord Jesus is so significant, your relationship with the Lord Jesus, you being united to the Lord Jesus, is such a significant truth that it has the power to overcome even your bodily appetites. Paul's making a logical argument, isn't he? If you're united with Christ, you can't possibly be united with a prostitute. But, and you may say, yes, but these desires, I have these desires. Paul seems to think that being united with Christ is so significant a truth that it will make being united with a prostitute as attractive to you as the concept of drinking chunky milk. Is the Lord Jesus that significant? What does Paul know about the Lord Jesus that you don't? That this vision of who the Lord Jesus is is significant enough for Paul to expect that the Corinthians would say no to their bodily desires. Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, wrote a song called Redeemed. We haven't sung it in a while. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. I shall see the king in his beauty, 
Fanny Crosby was blind, she had this hope that with her eyes, she was going to see the Lord Jesus. It drove her forward. And Paul has this expectation that you have in the eyes by faith, the eyes of your spirit, this vision of the Lord Jesus that is so significant that it makes satisfying your illegitimate, inordinate bodily desires, satisfying them in an inordinate way, horrific. What does the Apostle Paul know about the Lord Jesus that you don't? The resurrection of Jesus changes the identity of your body. Number three, it changes the ownership of your body. It changes the ownership of your body. Verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, Paul gives this command, flee from sexual immorality. There's this command, and he must be thinking about Joseph maybe in Genesis 38 who fled from Potiphar's wife. Then he talks about the unique nature of sexual sin. All other sins outside the body, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Not that, it is, uh, that sexual sins are particularly unforgivable. He's just clarifying for us who's the victim. Who's the victim in sexual sin? If we go out into the foyer and I uh, insult you or I slander you or I lie to you, you are the victim of my sin. I have with my tongue sinned against you. You're the victim. In sexual sin, Paul says, because your body is for the Lord and you are united to Christ, the victim is your own body. You're sinning against your, your body. Your body, verse 19, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian nature of the fight for purity in this passage. You're united to Christ. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body. And then he says... Verse 19, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. I think Paul is thinking more about Good Friday here than he is uh, Resurrection Sunday. He's thinking about the day that the Lord Jesus offered himself for us. We who were, using this imagery here, uh, at the slave market of sin... The Lord Jesus paid the price to set us free. Verse 13 had said that the Lord is for the body. It's unusual. The Lord is for the body. How, how can that be? I think he's referring to the fact that God the Son took to himself a body. He became one of us so that he might die as our substitute on the cross, taking to himself our sin he died bearing the penalty of God's wrath. He died and rose again and gives life and forgiveness to all who will turn and receive it by faith. You have been bought at a price and it extends even to your body. A few minutes ago, I talked about being alienated from your body. There are people who feel a sense of alienation from their body. I don't belong in this body. There are other ways to be alienated from your body. Some of you perhaps have an alienation from your body because of how others have misused your body. Your body is not a source of thanksgiving to God. Your body is not a reason for you to, to, to honor God or to, to serve him. But your body for you is overwhelmingly a source of shame and sorrow and grief. You get angry because if your body were different, they would have left you alone. Or you're angry because 
If your body were stronger, you could have fought them off. Your body has been used and defrauded by someone else. It is a source of shame. It is not a, a, place, a, a, a platform for gratitude to God. But notice what this passage says. Paul says, Christ has redeemed you, all of you. Others may have trashed your body. You may have trashed your body. But Christ laid down his life in payment for your body, you. The body you despise, Christ has purchased. We know that we've learned a song in the last couple of years based on the Heidelberg Catechism, at least the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me read it to you. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. I'm going to read the whole answer. It's a healthy paragraph. I want to focus on one phrase, which I'll come back to in a minute. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the phrase I want to think about. I belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. That's good news. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The body you have, broken or healthy, wrinkled or smooth, flabby or slim, pale or dark, out of shape or finely tuned, honored by others or trashed by others, it's Christ's. He purchased it. Use it for his purposes. Jesus is alive and that changes everything, everything about today. It changes how you steward your body. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that among all of the many ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God, all the ways in which we have dishonored you, our creator, we have also abused the bodies that you have given us. In a variety of ways, we have not cared for the body that you made, that you knit together in our mother's womb. And we come before you chastened by this passage of scripture that speaks to us about our bodies and yet hopeful. The Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us laid down his life for the sins that we have committed, even the sins that we've committed against our own bodies. So we come in hope to you through the Lord Jesus, helping you, asking you to help us. Lord, we confess the Corinthians are not alone in their struggles with sexual immorality. It, it, it's, it's not just those people out there who, who struggle with being... Um, dissatisfied and feeling alienated from the bodies that you have given us. So we come before you this morning asking you that you would 
remind us and drive this truth deep into our hearts and minds that the resurrection changes everything. You have redeemed all of us. Lord, we look forward to the day that the Lord Jesus will come back and there will be this great transformation. And we pray with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.